Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would find a Bible and open it up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, the first chapter, is where we're going to begin momentarily. I'm going to rip off about eight verses here in just a moment, and so you'll be benefited by reading along with me in that passage, as well as all of the other passages of Scripture that we'll be reading and considering for the next few minutes. Revelation chapter 1 is where our study will begin. As you're turning there, I will echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning, especially those who are guests with us. We appreciate so much the fact that you have chose to be here and to worship with us, to worship God together here upon this first day of the week. We are here to stir one another up, not only to, to worship God, but to stir each other up to love and to good works, as Hebrews chapter 10 talks about, and especially so as we see the day drawing near. And that is particularly the case this morning with the things that we're going to talk about. Begin reading with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John says this in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And he said, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands one was standing like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Let's just stop right there. Have you ever seen one of those scenes in a movie where the villain is talking up a real big game He's bad-mouthing and he's trash-talking the hero. He's got maybe all of his minions and all of his cronies all lined up. And he's telling them, when I get a hold of the hero, I'm going to give him what for. I'm going to do this and this and this to him. And then in the midst of all of his ranting and raving, slowly but surely, the hero walks up behind him. And the villain kind of feels his presence and he turns and slowly notices, yep, it's him. And immediately he begins to cower and to start backing up with all the things that he was saying. Oh, no, 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 Mr. Superhero, I'm so sorry. Please, please, please forgive me. I didn't mean it. Or maybe you've seen a scene in a television show where there's a young man, a character who is infatuated with a beautiful young lady at school. And he dreams and hopes for the day when he gets the chance to to talk to this young lady to get to maybe get to know her a little bit, maybe even to get her phone number or to ask her out on a date. And then finally the day comes. He's walking around the corner and she's coming around the corner and boom! They run into each other. Maybe books and papers go flying everywhere and there he is. Face to face, here's the moment. And as he has the opportunity to finally say something to her, he, he chokes... He maybe starts to stutter, maybe his mouth is dry, maybe the best that he's able to get out in that moment is a humana, 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 humana. We've all seen those kinds of scenes before. 
And in many ways, that's what's going on right here in Revelation chapter 1. Except John is not coming face to face with a high school crush or even coming face to face with a fictional superhero. In Revelation chapter 1, John is coming face to face, verse 17, with the first and the last. He's coming face to face, verse 18, with the one who has the keys over death and Hades, the one who died but is alive forevermore. John comes face to face with Jesus the Christ. And the fearsome image that he sees there. Did you notice in verses 12 through 16, that amazing description of what Jesus looked like in that moment? That description caused John to have a reaction that I think most of us would probably have if we were in his shoes. John fell down like a dead man. I think maybe the suggestion here is that John fainted from what he saw. John had seen Jesus some 60 years prior, before he ascended back into heaven. But now he is seeing Jesus in a different form. He is now seeing Jesus as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. And John's reaction in that moment is one of terror and amazement and reverence all wrapped into one. Which makes me wonder, what's it going to be like when we see Jesus? And by we, I don't just mean us here in this building right now. When I say we, I mean we as in the entire human race. Because a day is coming, Revelation 1 verse 7 says, when Jesus comes in the clouds and every eye will see Him. In that moment, when each and every person who has ever walked the face of this earth, when all people stand before the Lord in absolute final judgment, what will your reaction be then? What will you say? In the words of that old hymn that we often sing, what will your answer be? How will you react to the second coming of Jesus? In March of this year, I preached a sermon on some of the reactions to Jesus that were evident at the foot of the cross. The next month in April, I followed that up with a sermon about the reactions that were evident at the empty tomb. How did people react when Jesus rose from the grave? I regret that it's taken me so long to realize that actually that sermon series didn't need to stop at two, but actually it needed to be a trilogy. Because this morning I do want to talk for a few minutes about the reactions that I suspect we will see and hear at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what makes this lesson a little bit different from the first two is that in those first two events, we knew exactly what people said. We knew the people's reactions. We knew how people responded at the cross and at the tomb because, well, because the Bible tells us how those people reacted. But on the other hand, the second coming is an event that has yet to occur. It may occur in your lifetime, in my lifetime. It may occur decades or maybe even centuries from now. We just don't know. But one thing is for certain, Jesus is coming back. And when He does, I am persuaded that His return will spark all kinds of reactions, all kinds of responses. And this morning, I want to catalog some of the things that I think we can expect to see and hear 
when every single soul stands before the judge in that great and final day. This morning I want to set before you four responses that you are sure to hear on judgment day. Maybe even a response or two here that you might even be tempted to say yourself. But yet in all four of these cases, all four of these responses, unfortunately, they will not work. And then at the end, I want to share with you the one response. The one response that few will give on that day. But it is the one response that you will want to make on that day because it is the one response that meets with the Lord's approval. Are you ready for that? Let's talk about the responses that you can expect people to say on Judgment Day. And that all begins in the 14th Psalm. Because in Psalm chapter 14, I think we learn that there are going to be some people on Judgment Day who are going to say, "Um, who are you again? In Psalm the 14th chapter, David makes this astute observation in verse 1. In Psalm 14 and in verse 1, David says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew you were supposed to know someone, but as you look at them and as you kind of rack your brain, you realize... You just don't know them. You just can't place who they are. And it ends up making things really, really awkward in that moment. There's a funny story, for example, about Teddy Roosevelt's sister. Her name was Corrine. She was on a train, and a lady got on the train, and Corrine, she recognized the lady. She knew who the lady was. But very quickly, it became clear that the lady didn't know who Corrine was. And so the lady, kind of in that moment, as I think many of us often do, she kind of tried to bluff, oh, (laughs) hey, how are you doing? She didn't want to seem totally in the dark. And she attempted to try to ask some questions, some leading questions. And the first thing that she asked Corrine was, so, what's your brother doing these days? To which Corrine answered, well, he's still the president of the United States of America. Oh, that's... It's kind of awkward. I imagine that lady felt very, very awkward in that moment. And you know what? I think there's going to be a whole lot of awkward on Judgment Day. Because atheism and agnosticism, while those ideas and those beliefs are still very much in the minority in our society, there are still many people who don't know God. There are those, like the ones mentioned here in Psalm 14, verse 1, who absolutely just deny God's existence. David refers to them as fools. But you know what? There are also lots of other people in our world who think that they know the Lord, but they really don't have a clue about who the Lord is. For example, think about people who carry around the image of God as being, well, God's just kind of like my grandpa. He's just kind of kind of old and sweet, and he's just kind of blissfully naive. You know, you know how your grandpa is. Grandpa lets you get away with just about anything, and well, that's just kind of the way God is. He'll just let you get away with whatever you want. What are those people who carry around that mental image of God? What are they going to say when they arrive at Judgment Day and they find the Lord administering punishment and pouring out His wrath on sinners? Those people are going to say, whoa, who are you? Who is this God? 
I had a very different conception of God. I thought of God as back, you know, kind of a big giant cosmic teddy bear who just kind of hugs us and he's just kind of warm and fuzzy and makes you feel all good inside. Who is this God who takes sin so seriously? Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Bible says you better know who God is. And you better get a right conception of who God is. And you better get to work on that right now. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, the Bible says there, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Let me say something right now that probably will not be the most profound statement you've ever heard, but it is so important. You don't want to wait till judgment to be introduced to God. You need to get introduced to Him right now. You need to know Him. You need to love Him. And you need to serve Him before you get to Judgment Day. Because pleading ignorance on that day isn't going to cut it. Just like this second response isn't going to cut it. And this second response is something that people say all the time. People say it today all of the time. And when this line comes out of people's mouths, they don't say it because they were in the middle of doing the right thing. No, people use this line to try and cover up the fact that they were doing the wrong thing and they don't want to take responsibility for that thing. And so we say things like, well, you know, I'm I'm only human. I'm not perfect, but, but who is? You know, we all make mistakes. Don't you know, Lord, nobody's perfect. And people say that kind of thing all the time. And in fact, sometimes we even say that kind of thing. But you know what? I'm not real sure. I'm not real sure that that's going to play very well on Judgment Day. Because while we talk about standing before God as the judge, I want you to please remember that we will also be standing before God, our Creator. That is, we will be standing before the very One who made us. Which means if you rattle off that line of, well, you know, Lord, I'm not perfect, what you are essentially saying to the one who made you is, well, God, you just didn't do a very good job here. You made me defective in some way. You created me in some way that was flawed. You did a poor job of constructing me and putting me together. I just was unable to do any better. Wow! Attacking the judge? That doesn't seem like a very good strategy to me. You didn't make me right, God. You expected too much out of me. You know, for somebody who was made the way that I am, there just was no chance that I could ever live up and do the things that you wanted me to do. I'm just not perfect. Can I direct your attention to the Scriptures? The Bible never says that we were designed or created in some flawed way so that we are incapable of obeying the Lord. No, actually the Bible says quite the opposite. Would you look in Ecclesiastes, please? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In Ecclesiastes 7, the wise man, after living life and observing things and coming to some conclusions, he makes this statement in verse 29. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29. 
He says, see this alone I have found. That God made man upright. Some translations say, God made man honest. God made us good. But they, man, they have sought out many schemes. You see, this isn't a failure on God's part. No, if there's a breakdown, then the breakdown is on the other end of the equation. It's on our end of the equation. God made us with the capacity to do what's right. But we are the ones who chose to go off in our own way, to go off in our own direction. In fact, by the biblical definition, do you realize that God actually has made us with the ability to be perfect? you realize that? And I'm using that term perfect the way the Bible uses it. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told there that God has actually given us a tool. It is the tool for achieving perfection. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all Scripture, it is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Your translation may say, perfect, equipped for every good work. You see, God has written and He has protected and He has provided us with His Word. Why? To bring about the perfection, the completeness that He is looking for. Why in the world would God go to all the trouble of writing and protecting and preserving His Word down to this day if we were incapable of living up to the standard that He has given to us? Maybe the question that really needs to be asked here is why would there even be a judgment day if you can just stand before God in that day and say, "Eh, you know, nobody's perfect, Lord. Couldn't anybody say that? How about Adolf Hitler? Adolf Hitler, you stand charged with starting a holocaust. You stand charged with leading some events that plunged human civilization into a world war which resulted in the death of millions of people and untold damage and harm worldwide. What do you have to say for yourself, Mr. Hitler? Do you think Mr. Hitler in that moment is going to be able to shrug his shoulders and say, well, you know, nobody's perfect, Lord. I think not. That's not going to wash, is it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what the Bible says is that you and I and Adolf Hitler and everybody else is going to be accountable for how we lived our lives. For the things that we did, for the things that we left undone, for the good that we did, for the wrong that we did. In 2 Corinthians 5, look in verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body whether good or evil. The very nature of what Paul is describing here demands personal accountability. That God holds us responsible for our conduct. And that He does not allow us to kind of just slide out of that by announcing, well, nobody's perfect, don't you know? No. No, that that excuse, that statement, that expression, that isn't going to hold up on Judgment Day. In fact, there's the flip side to that coin that I think also gets bandied about a lot. And in fact, it's going to be met with a lot of skepticism on Judgment Day. 
The flip side of that is when folks say, well, you know, I was a pretty good person. You know, I, I, I did a lot of good in my life. I did a lot of good things. I, I, I gave money to charity. I, I was kind to stray puppy dogs. I, I made my bed every morning. I, I didn't go out and murder anyone. You know, I, I'm not perfect. But you know, I was, I was a pretty good person. If I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody say that, I would have many nickels. You go to a funeral and what do you often hear? Doesn't matter who the person is. People say, oh, she was so good. If she's not in heaven, nobody's going to make it to heaven. Why? Because she was such a good person. What's the suggestion there? When that statement gets thrown around, this person was so good, they're going to go to heaven. There's no doubt they're going to heaven. What's the suggestion there? The suggestion there is that on the day of judgment, this person is going to call to God's attention all of their good deeds, all of the good things that they did, and God is just going to be so impressed with that that He's going to have no other choice but to invite them in to the pearly gates. In fact, that's not just a hypothetical sort of idea. Jesus Himself says that people are going to think that. In Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, this equation of be good, go to heaven, well, that's a very popular idea. In Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, look at what Jesus says here in verse 21. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Translation. Didn't we do a lot of good stuff? Didn't we do some good things for you? Verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that just doing some good stuff, that's not the measure of whether or not you're going to go to heaven. Now, somebody at this point is maybe wondering and scratching their heads, well, well, what exactly are you saying, Josh? Are you saying, is Jesus implying that it's bad to do good? Are you saying that we shouldn't do good? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. You should do good. Are you a good person? Good. The world needs more good people. And you need to know that doing good That that matters. It does. It is important. In fact, let's just listen to Jesus again. Look in John 5. In John chapter 5, there Jesus makes clear that how we live our lives, whether we live in a good way or whether we live in a bad way, it matters. In John 5, look in verse 28. Again, talking about some things that will happen at Judgment Day. In John chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Notice this, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So I want you to understand very clearly that yes, doing good, it matters. Doing good helps us to be others-centered instead of always being self-centered. Doing good really is just a natural extension of our walk with the Lord. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. Doing good is not the basis for our salvation. I want to say that again. Doing good, 
Doing good things, good deeds, good works, that is not the basis of our salvation. Somehow, I'm afraid, people have concocted this picture in their mind that the day of judgment is really just going to be this big bookkeeping event where God is going to pull out His big giant book, His big giant ledger, and it's got the records of all of the deeds that we have ever committed in this life. And what God's going to do is He's going to look and He's going to check and He's going to make sure that our good deeds outnumber all of the bad deeds that we did in this life. And so... Here's Tom Palmer. Well, let's find Tom Palmer. Okay, found Tom Palmer here. Let's just look him up in the book. Well, it says here, Tom Palmer, you did five bad things in your life. That's not a good look, buddy. You did five really bad things. You're in some real danger here, bud. Look over here on the other side of the ledger. You did six good things. Oh, good for you. The good outnumbers the bad. You get to go into heaven. In fact, it doesn't even matter, in a lot of people's minds, it doesn't even matter if you've done a million bad things over here in the bad column, as long as you've got a million and one good things over here in the good column, hey, that cancels out all that bad stuff over there. You'll be saved. Now, I realize that's a pretty crass way of putting it, but i got to tell you, I think when people lie about this, I was a good person, that's the picture they're running in their mind. That's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, God... Just just pull the book out. Just check it out, if you will. Look right there. On the right side of things. On the right side of things, things are going to be well for me. I did a lot of good things in my life. Lots of good stuff. It's going to way outnumber all the bad stuff I did. In fact, as I think about that, it kind of makes me wonder, what about people? What about people who just miss the cut? They start doing the numbers and they just miss the cut. Oh, if I'd only helped that little old lady across the street. I was just short one. I could have got over here and I could have been in the red. Oh, Or what about when there's a tie? What about that? What about when the number of good deeds and the bad deeds are the exact same number? You know, in baseball, the tie goes to the runner. So if the ledger is even on both sides, do do you get to go on into heaven anyway? I mean, maybe God will let you have kind of a, a dirty corner over there in heaven. Maybe that's how that works out. I don't know how that works. Well, actually the truth is, that's not how any of that works. Because that system, that whole way of thinking... It fails to reckon with one critically important idea. And that is, what do you do with your sins? How do you deal with your sins with the ledger format? You may have done an awful lot of good things over here on the right-hand column. But I want to tell you that none of those good things, in fact, all of those good things all added up, they don't even cancel out even one sin. And so when you're standing before God and you want to boast to Him of all the good things that you did, God's still going to have a question for you. And that question is, well, what about this? What about this sin? In fact, what about all of this sinful stuff that you did in this life? Maybe an illustration would help here. Imagine imagine a man who is an accountant for a multi-million dollar company. And this man is, he's a good man. He's a, he's a hard worker. He's a good husband. He's a good father to his children. He coaches little league. He's a good neighbor to the people that are in his community. But imagine that one day it gets found out that this man has actually been embezzling millions and millions of dollars from his company. And now he's been arrested and now he's going to stand trial. When that man goes to trial and he then stands before the judge, Is he going to be able to say, but judge, I was such a good husband. 
I've been such a good father. I coached my kids' little league team. I did good things for my neighbor. What's the judge going to say? The judge is going to say, well, good for you. You know, that's nice and all that you did all that. But all those good things, they don't change the fact that you broke the law. You committed a crime for which there must now be a penalty. Listen to James in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James says some things about the law and about how we ought to respond and what we need to think about as it pertains to God's law. In James 2, look in verse 10. James says in James 2 verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And so, yeah, keeping the law, doing all the good works that the law requires, yeah, that's good. That's great. Those good works are really, really important. But what do you do when you violate God's law even just one time? Well, the answer is you can't do anything about that. But the good news is Jesus can do something about that. Look in Romans chapter 3 now. This is maybe the best place in the whole Bible where Paul addresses this predicament and the solution for this predicament. In Romans chapter 3, notice what he says. Here's the predicament in verse 20. Romans 3 verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, doing all kinds of good stuff, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says you can do all kinds of good works, and it's never going to be enough. And why? Because verse 23, Because all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Again, even just one sin can separate a person from God. No matter how much good, no matter how many great things he or she has done. That's why the answer for sin is not within ourselves. The answer for sin is outside of us. The answer for sin is Jesus. And that's why Paul continues on, verse 24, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see, it is the grace and the mercy of God that brings about salvation. It is faith and trust in Jesus that remedies the problem of sin. We do good works, yes, but we do good works because Jesus has forgiven us, not because we think doing these good works is going to merit or earn us His forgiveness. Telling God on Judgment Day, Oh Lord, I'm a good person. That's not going to suffice. Just like this fourth response isn't going to suffice. When people stand before the Lord in that day and they expect salvation because, well, I was a member of the church. You know, hey God, pull out the church directory. Pull up the Lakeside app. Scroll through the directory. You will see my name. In fact, you'll see my picture there. I was a member of the congregation. I'm in there. I've been a member of the church for 30, 40, 50 years. I've been coming to church all my life. Regular in my attendance. Never been withdrawn from by the church. I am a member of this congregation. And so when that roll is called up yonder and the lakeside congregation gets summoned forth, hey, I'll just stand right there with the whole group. We'll all be ready to receive eternal life together. We'll all just kind of go in together. And people love to think in those sorts of terms, I think. And that's because people love to be a part of a group. Generally speaking, 
Human beings like to be in groups. That sense of inclusion, that sense of acceptance and belonging and togetherness, man, those are, those are all wonderful benefits and blessings that come with being in a group. And I'll say this about a group. A group can help you. In fact, if you get with the right group, that group can help you get all the way to heaven. And that group is the Lord's group. That group is called the church. And it is a group of people who love you and will care for you, who will pray for you, who will encourage you, who will hold you accountable, who will help bear your burdens, who will help facilitate your growth. And the benefits to being a part of that group are extraordinary. And it will help give you a huge boost in the right direction. But I need you to understand very, very clearly this morning. There is no group plan for going to heaven. There is no group rate. There is no group package for eternal life. Are you still still there in Romans? Just maybe look across the page in chapter 2. In chapter 2 of Romans, look in verse 6. Paul says, talking about God's judgment, he says, He will render to each one according to his or her works. You see, standing around the righteous, that is not the same as you being righteous. Just like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a Toyota, neither does sitting in a church pew make you a disciple. On the day of judgment, you will stand before the judge by yourself. You will be solo in that moment. You will stand alone and you will have to give an answer to the Lord yourself. You'll have to give an answer for you, for your life. And yes, part of that I think is going to have to be given an answer for your level of involvement and your level of service and devotion and relationship to the Lord's church. But I want to say again, you can't be saved by simply identifying as a member, even as a member of a good group like Lakeside. Now, right about now, somebody's probably thinking, well, if we can't say any of those things, then what should you say on Judgment Day? All that stuff that people plan to say. In fact, I was even thinking about saying some of those things on Judgment Day. All those things don't seem to work. So what would be the appropriate thing to say? I got you. Actually, Paul has you. Look in Philippians 3. In Philippians chapter 3... I've said many times before, this is my favorite passage in all the New Testament. And this is a sampling of it. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, beginning in verse 8. In Philippians 3 and in verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, notice this, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the common thread in that passage? That passage is all about 
knowing Jesus. And so what you've got to be able to say on Judgment Day is, God, I know your Son. I know Christ Jesus. And the reason that's going to be so important is because of that passage we read earlier in Matthew 7. Do you remember in verse 23? Those people who receive the sentence of eternal condemnation, what is it that Jesus says to those people? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? In that final tribunal, when the accuser, the enemy, Satan, when he brings all of his charges against you, and he's saying all his stuff to God, oh, he's done this, or she's done that, and oh, look at all the bad things that they've done. You have to be able in that moment to say, Jesus has taken care of it. I have been forgiven, I have been washed, I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I know God's Son. And He knows me. I am with Him. I belong to Him. I am His. I know the Lord. And the question right now is, can you say that? Can you say that this morning? If today were in fact the day that the Lord returns and... It very well might be. If today were that day and you were brought face to face with your Maker, would you be able to say, Lord, I know your Son. I do. I put my faith and my trust in Him. I've been united with Him in the waters of baptism. He washed all of my sins away. He brought me into a relationship. He brought me into fellowship with you. I know Jesus. If you cannot say that this morning... And right now, we are imploring you to make a decision. To make a decisive decision so that you can know Him and be found in Him for whenever that day comes. I know last Sunday morning we sang as an invitation song number 470, Do You Know My Jesus? But I asked Tom if he would lead it again for us this morning. Do you know Jesus? Are you in a right relationship with Him? Would He acknowledge before His Father that He knows you? Or would He say to you, Depart. I don't know you. If the answer to any of those questions about whether you know Jesus or whether He would acknowledge you before His Father, if the answer to any of those questions is no, then I, we, the Lord, We are urging you to seize upon this moment right now and to make whatever changes might need to be made in your life. And if there's something that we here can do to help in making that change, whether that is obeying the gospel, whether that is praying and seeking the forgiveness of God, whether that is just coming to a better understanding of some things about who Jesus is and knowing Him as the Bible says, then would you make that known right now by coming to the front? Do that while we stand and while we sing.